Well, if you have a Bible, let's open up to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. It's in the New Testament. Remember, if you have no idea where John is, it's totally fine. Feel free to use the table of contents. You'll go to kind of the middle of the Bible and start going to the right. And you'll hit Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. We're in one of the four gospel accounts. When you get to John, look for the big number 13. That's the chapter that we're going to be in. And then look for the little verse 18. That's where we're going to start this morning. And we're going to finish up John chapter 13. If you're new and visiting with us this morning, we started at the beginning of the year. And we've been looking at John's gospel account verse by verse by verse each and every week. So if you want to know where we're going to be next week, we're going to be in John chapter 14, verse 1. Next one up as we just march our way through this gospel. And while you're opening up there to John 13, we're going to start in verse 38, or verse 18, excuse me. Let me tell you a story. In the mid-1960s, a man graduated from George Washington University and began a long career working for the CIA. This is a career that he had not originally sought out, but this career ended up being something that he was very well suited for. And in the mid-70s, after about a decade of working for the CIA, he was assigned several Soviet contacts to keep an eye on. In his background, he was fluent in Russian, and the Cold War was still raging. And so his kind of background and him being there was kind of just another perfect fit for him and a perfect fit for his skill set in the CIA. And over the next 20 years, so this is kind of the mid-70s, for the next 20 years through the mid-90s, this man continued to interface with the Soviet embassy. He worked on behalf of U.S. government interests, and he was working for the CIA. Or at least that's what the U.S. thought. In 1994, Aldrich Ames was outed as a Soviet double agent who had been working with the KJB, and he had taken in millions of dollars selling intel to the Russians. He had sold the identities of undercover CIA agents. Some people think that it was well over a hundred names. And because of him selling that list of names to the KJB, there are at least ten confirmed kills related to him releasing these names. The full extent of the damage that Ames caused during his decades in the CIA will never really be known. And he's currently serving a life sentence without parole for his treason. Ames, when you think about this, the history of our country, when you think about just kind of the history of you know, governments and people interfacing with them, Ames is just one of many infamous names in history related to treason and betrayal. We think about names like Benedict Arnold or Brutus. We think about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. The list goes on. Guys like Ames. These people, that they go down in infamy in history for being related to the idea of betrayal. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to zoom in on another one of those infamous names. Judas Iscariot. You think about the, the, the kind of the one-off names like, um, you know, Brutus, even you, Brutus. We think, all you have to say is Judas, and everybody thinks betrayer. And so we've already heard about him a couple of times already in John's Gospel. We've kind of gotten whispers of what he is going to do, him helping himself to the money bag, and we get kind of a, John gives us a peek behind the curtain along the way, but this morning we're going to zoom in on him and his betrayal, and we'll, we'll get to see him again later on in John's Gospel. 
Now remember last week, if you were here with us, or if you just want to look to the previous verses, 1 through 17 in chapter 13, we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet in the upper room. And remember, in, in chapter 13, we moved into what is called this big section of John's gospel called the upper room discourse. And we'll be in it for the next few chapters. And what we see is Jesus washing his feet in the upper room, and we see how the kingdom of God is marked by self-sacrifice, not self-promotion. But even as we see Jesus taking the form of a servant and calling his disciples and even us today to a life of service in his footsteps, we see that in verses 14 and 17, we also see another reality of a life living in, living, that is lived in a sinful and fallen world. And that is the reality of betrayal. We have all experienced or will experience this at some point in our lives, and it's really hard. We've all been betrayed. We, if we haven't already, we probably will be at some point. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a story that my dad told me when he was in high school. He was uh, sitting there getting ready, and it was a day where they had brought their book reports. It was time to kind of get up and, and give kind of a, like an oral presentation of something that you had prepared. And he remembers sitting down, and he tells me this story. He said, I remember sitting down, and I had this pretty girl that sat in front of me. And she turned around and she said, hey, tell me about your, what did you learn? Tell me about your book report. Tell me about your project. And so my dad, much like me in high school, we didn't get a lot of attention from the pretty girls. So when, when a girl turns around and looks at you and says, hey, speak to me, you go, okay. And so my dad spilled his guts about his book report. And he told her all about it and how much he had learned and all that kind of stuff. And she nodded and, man, that was great. Thanks for telling me that. And the teacher said, okay, now it's time for uh, book reports. Who's ready to give their report? Her hand shot up. She went to the front of the room and proceeded to give my dad's report word for word based on what he had just told her. And he said, I just remember sitting there and just realizing she is basically teaching my report. Talk about being stabbed in the back. When we think about Judas' name, when we think about what he's done, it's historically infamous because Jesus himself knew what it was like to be betrayed by someone very close to him. And even more amazing is that Jesus knew it was coming the whole time. And let's see how Jesus teaches us about living in a world marked by sin and betrayal. Remember, it's something we're all going to experience. So how do we deal with it? How does the gospel shine light on this? And I want you, as we're about to read, I want you to see if you can pick up on the contrasts between the world of Judas and the kingdom of God. There's this big contrast that's laid out. See if you can pick up on that contrast or that struggle as we read this, this uh, passage. So let's give attention to the reading of God's, world, uh, God's word. John chapter 13. Sorry, my tongue needs to catch up to my brain. John chapter 13, verses 18 to 38. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him and asked Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread that I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together and ask the Lord's help. Please pray with me. Lord, we come to you needing to, to hear a word from outside of ourselves to redescribe reality to us. And so we pray that you would do that this morning. We're grateful for your word, that it will never be shaken, because you will never be shaken. And we're thankful, O Lord, that your word will never perish. So take these words, apply them to our heart, O Lord. Spirit, please be at work. Lord, change us just in some small way, as we have sat at your feet for a few moments. We pray and ask these things humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen. Okay, normally I usually start with a big question, but we're not going to do that this morning. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to use that contrast that we see as our two major points. It's actually baked into the sermon title. So if you forget, you can just look up there on your bulletin. So our two big points are we're going to look at a radical betrayal. And our second point is a radical love. So we're going to look at a radical betrayal and a radical love. So let's look at that first point, a radical betrayal. Last week, when we realized, we realized that we were functioning like a fly on the wall during the last few hours of Jesus' time with his disciples. And we're told in verse 2 and verse 11 of chapter 13 that Judas was going to betray him. And remember, each and, with every verse that passes, we get closer and closer and closer to the cross. And as the cross approaches, we have learned that this is all part of God's sovereign plan of redemption for his chosen people, and that none of this caught Jesus, none of this caught God off guard. And as we get, begin this morning in verse 18, Jesus makes clear that there is a distinction among his disciples, that some of them were chosen, some of them were marked for salvation, called and brought to saving faith under the ministry of Christ, but one of them wasn't, and his name was Judas. And again, this was all part of the plan, 
As Jesus reminds us that this is fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. And what he does is Jesus references Psalm 41, which refers to Ahithophel's betrayal of David. Here's what Psalm 41, 7 through 9 says. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So even this, Jesus is referring back to the scripture at the time, Psalm 41. And you may have picked up on that specific reference to the heel. It's a very specific word. You may have picked up on that reference to the heel. If you're familiar with kind of a study of redemptive history or covenant theology, that may have taken you back to Genesis 3.15. The promise God made in the wake of the fall of Adam and Eve. Remember, God created all things. And then a page and a half in the Bible, we fell. And there's this specific reference to the heel there. Genesis 3.15, this is the promise that God made to Adam and Eve on the, on the heels of that. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The amazing thing about this passage, we've talked about this before, is this is actually the first time the gospel is mentioned in the Bible. So a page and a half in, right on the train wreck of the fall of an Adam and Eve into sin, a redeemer is promised. The fancy technical word for this is the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, the first evangelism. And so this is the first time the gospel is mentioned, a page and a half in the Bible. And we have this idea of this redeemer who is going to be born of a woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent and who had lied to Adam and Eve. And what we see is this plan of redemption in seed form in this passage. And the whole rest of the scripture is an outworking of this. And ever since this announcement, Satan has been desperately trying to wipe out the lineage leading to the promised Redeemer. Think about the struggle between Cain and Abel and Jacob and Esau and David and Absalom. All of these were just shadows pointing forward to Christ and the larger struggle at work between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now we see that old serpent creeping back in as Jesus announces that the one close to him will betray him. Look at verse 21. It said, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And we see that phrase, troubled in spirit, again. We've, we've talked about this before. It's the Greek word terasso. T-E-R-A-S-S-O. Terasso. And this word was, has been used a couple of times. Number one, it was used to describe the stirred water at the pool of Siloam. It was troubled. It was stirred up. And also Jesus at the mouth of Lazarus' tomb. And also in John 12, 27, when Jesus talked about him being lifted up, it said his soul was troubled. Here's what R.C. Sproul said about what's going on here in verse 21. He said, In the ancient Near East, to betray a friend was considered a heinous crime. But far more heinous was to betray a friend with whom one had shared bread at the table. You think about it, this is just an, an absolute close betrayal that we see here. I was also thinking about how we see this in the movies. And if any of you have ever seen The Godfather, you know Fredo, the brother of Michael Corleone who goes and basically double-crosses his brother. And there's this scene in the midst of a party where Michael finds Fredo. 
And he, and he goes up and he kind of grabs Fredo's head and he brings him in and he kisses him and he looks at him and kind of shakes him and says, Fredo, I know it was you. I know it was you. You broke my heart. You broke my heart. And he's shaking Fredo. I know it was you, Fredo. You think about just this is a betrayal at the most closest intimate level. And in verses 22 and 25, you see how stunning this announcement of betrayal was because of the bewilderment of others in the room. It's like the shockwave that goes out. Verse 25, we assume that it's John, leans back against Jesus and quietly asks, Lord, who is it? It's kind of this intimate moment between Jesus and John. And in verse 26, Jesus tells John quietly, while we assume that the others are noisily processing what just happened, that the one he gives the dip bread to is his betrayer. So we can imagine John kind of leaning back on Jesus and going, hey, who is this? And we can imagine all the clamor going on around. And Jesus is saying, the one whom I'm about to give this morsel to is the one who is going to betray me. And in the ancient Near East, serving someone a dipped piece of bread was a sign of special friendship or relationship. An example of this comes from Ruth chapter 2. Remember when we did our big study through Ruth? It says, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Ruth, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. This idea of this is a very special thing. And now we see this sign of friendship is becoming the sign of betrayal by a close friend. In verse 27, we see the, the hardness of Judas's heart. Even though he is face to face with Jesus, he fully rejects him and he's fully handed over to Satan. And it is a frightening picture. Now, Jesus did not make Judas sin. That is blasphemy. Jesus did not make Judas sin. Judas freely surrendered to the sinful desires of his heart as his rebellion is brought to light. And what had begun as a deceptive suggestion in verse 2 now has led to outright denial and even opposition by the time we get to verse 27. But notice what happens here. Jesus never protests. He submits to his Father's will. As he did not reveal Judas' intent, he tells him to hurry up and get, over, get it over with. Even in this moment, Jesus knows that the cross is still approaching. And even Judas is part of that plan. And so he looks at Judas and he says, what you need to do, go and do it. The next time that, we'll, that Jesus will see Judas is later on when Judas comes and identifies Jesus with that betrayal's kiss. And so that's the next time we'll see Judas. And in verse 30, we're told that it's nighttime. Verses 28 to 29 tell us that the disciples were also in the dark about Judas's exit from the gathering. They didn't really know what he was doing. But notice how the tone shifts in verse 31 as evil Judas and the devil in his heart leaves the room. It's like the darkness lifts. As we see Judas exit stage left, into the night he goes, and now with Judas gone, the conversation shifts from how the Son will be betrayed to how God will be glorified. So we see a radical betrayal. And now, in our second point, we see a radical love. And notice the contrast that exists. Did you notice the repetition of the same word in verses 31 and 32? There's two versions of the verb glorify that's repeated five times. You see, you know, glory, glorified. You see versions of this. It's mentioned five times in those two verses. The Greek word used here is doxadso. You may notice that it sounds a lot like doxology. That's where we get that from. Here's what Ian Duguid said. 
Jesus knows that God is working good for those who love him, that Jesus will be glorified by these events, and that God will be glorified as well. And you think, how in the world, how in the world can God be glorified out of such a dark situation? How in the world is God going to get glory out of this? You see Judas betraying, you see just brokenness and fallenness, and how in the world does glory come out of this at all? Again, here's what Ian Duguid said. This is a long quote. Hang with me, but you also had the notes sent to you if you'd like. Here's what Duguid said. Quote, The glory in view is the cross where Jesus will be glorified in the display of his unique ability to satisfy the wrath of the Father, to bear the sin of his people, and to accomplish salvation. The Son of Man will be glorified at the cross because his infinite worth will be seen in the complete satisfaction for sin that he achieves. God will be glorified at the cross because his unyielding justice will be upheld as he demonstrates his absolute commitment to righteousness through the punishment of sin. Simultaneously, God's incomparable mercy will be made possible as Jesus makes propitiation for sin and God's matchless love will be demonstrated in his comprehensive commitment to saving his people. God does not spare Jesus because he loves his people. End quote. Long quote, but a lot in there. Talking about how God is going to receive glory out of all this. And this morning as we're processing what's going on here, if you are here and you do not trust Christ as your Savior, I want you to heed the warning of Judas's life. Heed the warning that is laid before you. Because if you are here and you do not trust Christ as your Savior, you're still under some pretty bad news. Here's that bad news. You're still under the weight of your sin. You're still under the wrath of God and you're under his just judgment because of your sin and rebellion. Look and heed the warning of Judas's life put before you. Heed the warning of Scripture that those who do not have a Savior are under his wrath and curse and totally deserve it. Here's Psalm 14 verses 2 and 3. Since the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There was none who does good, not even one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the thing is, when you think about how in the world is the Lord going to bring glory out of this, when we see such a radical betrayal, we hear the bad news that if you are here and you do not trust Christ, you are still under the weight and wrath of God for your sin. It has not been dealt with. Here's the amazing thing that I want you to think about with our two points, this radical betrayal and this radical love. Where do those two things meet? At the cross. Those two things meet at the cross. The cross is the place where radical betrayal and radical love meet, and, the, and love came out victorious. And this is good news for those who trust Christ by faith today. And why is this good news? Why is this such good news? Because it's easy to throw stones at Judas, isn't it? Until we realize that this was our state before the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Hardened in sin. Betraying our Creator. Rebelling against Him. This was our state. It's easy to throw stones at Judas until you realize that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, this is where you are. It's also easy to throw stones at Peter, isn't it? When we hear 
of his threefold denial that's coming up. We hear about that in verses 36 to 38 until we realize that we've done the exact same thing. When pressure mounts, we've turned away. We've denied our Lord in many ways. We're just like it. So easy to throw stones at Judas and Peter until we realize that that's us. That's where we are in the story. Romans 3.23 told us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our Bibles could have ended in Genesis 3.14, couldn't they? God creates all things, puts Adam and Eve, obey me in this one area, they blow it, that's your Bible. God could have wiped us off the face of the earth, you and I could never have been sitting here. It could have ended right there, but it didn't, did it? There's more, there's more to the story. Thankfully, that's not how the message ends. That while we were dead in our sin, God moved towards us by His mercy and grace Remember, in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but yet there's other verses that come along. You want to know what the very next few verses say? Romans 3.24-26, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We think about how betrayal and love, they meet at the cross, and love comes out victorious. You think about these promises and this, this uh, you know, Jesus pointing to the heel. The, the amazing thing about this is that the promise of Genesis 3.15 actually came true which gives us more hope in the veracity and the truth and the power of the Scripture. That this prophecy came true. Christ, that promised Redeemer, came and He crushed the head of the serpent. And He walked out of the tomb after enduring the cross and the death that you and I deserved because of our betrayal. Jesus dealt with it. And He walked out of the tomb as this promised Redeemer. This one who would come and crush the head of the serpent because you couldn't crush him yourself. Think about the radical, grace-filled love of God towards those who have betrayed Him and rebelled against Him. Sit for a moment and just dwell upon the radical love of Christ on the cross for you. This place where betrayal and love meet. This promised one who was going to come and do what you couldn't do. And he did it because of love for his people. Just dwell on that for a minute. Just sit there. I want to tell you about another former betrayer of Christ. His name was Paul. And he would later write in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 25 for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. On the night He was betrayed, 
Jesus continues to show grace and mercy and love. And now, because of Christ and this new relationship that we have with God through the cross of Christ, we, by faith, are again offered the morsel of friendship by grace and mercy. Take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Take and drink. My blood poured and spilled out for you. It's this morsel of friendship offered to us again because the head of the serpent has been crushed. You see, Satan crept in and said in the garden, take and eat to the first Adam, didn't he? Take and eat. And that led to sin and death. And now Christ as the last Adam, the second Adam, calls us to take and eat by faith, which leads to eternal life in the Son. And the question this morning when we think about this is, which Adam are you united to this morning? The first or the second? It's one or the other. You're either in the first Adam, which leads to sin and death, or you're in the last Adam, Jesus Christ, which leads to life and life eternal. Which Adam are you united to by faith this morning? It's one or the other. Neutrality is not an option. The scripture does not speak of that. The radical love of Christ's cross has come to us who are united to Jesus by faith. But we, the redeemed disciples of Christ, are now called to mirror that radical world, that radical love in the world around us. And so Christ is saying, there's this radical love that has come into your world. And we go, so what? What do we do with it? That's verses 34 and 35. Look at verses 34 and 35 as we think all the promises of God and how do we respond to this? Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's our memory verse, is it not? I want you to notice here, this is, not called, a new, this is called a new commandment, not a new suggestion. This is a commandment from the lips of Jesus for his disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. The thing about it is we still have this war within our hearts between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. Sin makes us only love ourselves. And the kingdom of this world is really happy to run on the fuel of human selfishness, greed, contempt, and the idolatry of comfort and control. Satan is more than happy to see people tearing each other apart as enemies, especially inside the church body. Through gossip, passive-aggressive comments, grumbling, or open hostility. Think about the fights that have happened in the church of God just over the past year. Over to wear a piece of cloth over your face or not. Think about all the fights that have happened. You don't think Satan is more than happy to come into a church and tear it apart from the inside? He loves to see it. And so how do we respond? We lean on the words of Jesus when he says, Love one another as I have loved you. It's a new commandment, not a suggestion. I'm commanding you to love one another. And you think that sounds so counterintuitive. You can't make somebody love somebody. But what we can do is ask the Lord to give us this. Lord, help us to love one another. Sin makes us not want to do that. You want to talk about a good thing to pray as we pray in Jesus' name and pray according to the Scripture? Lord, help me to love one another. Help us to love each other. Christians have been called out of the kingdom of the world and placed in the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is marked by self-sacrifice and radical love and love for each other, but also love for our enemies. Why? Because that's what Christ did for us. 
And he commands us to follow in his footsteps until he calls us home or he returns in glory. Here again is what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. He said, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, there's our word, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, so let's get real practical here for just a moment. And let's think about, as Jesus has said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have also loved you. And the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Today is the day to bury old hatchets within our church and to seek forgiveness with your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. Today is the day. Today is the day to follow Christ by dying to yourself and living for the glory of Christ as you radically serve others in the church. It is a call to give up your endless quest for comfort and control and a call to active love and service today. We're called to follow in the Lord's footsteps. We're called to repent. We're called to, we're called to return to the Lord. Why? Because He's gracious and He's merciful. And we're called to come before Him. And we need to examine as We do not, it is my prayer, it is our session's prayer, I hope it is your prayer, that the Lord will, that Satan will not tear this church apart from the inside. I've seen it happen too many times. Some of y'all have lived through it in this building. And we need to actively pray against the Lord's devices to tear this church apart from the inside. And we pray, Lord, be our strength. Lord, be our shield. Lord, help us to love one another as you have loved us. Lord, help me to serve. Lord, help me to give all that I have until the very end. Help me to find a place to serve in the church. I've mentioned again, there's nine teams. Sign up for one. We need you. Help. Help us to love one another. If you've got beef with someone in the church today, you need to go and seek repentance and reconciliation. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Listen to the commandment that Jesus gives you. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. It's so hard, isn't it? It's so hard. We love our little grudges, don't we? We love holding on to them and petting them until they turn around and eat us. Today's the day. Repent and believe the gospel. Love one another as Christ has loved us. It's so hard. But listen... Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Hebrews 10.12-17, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering He was perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, that's you and me, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's what Christ has done for us. Matthew 5, 43-44. Almost done. Hang with me. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Don't you see the contrast? The kingdom of this world is more than happy to run along on the fuel 
of our own greed and our sin and our self-promotion and our self-interest. But yet, the King of glory, Christ Himself, calls us to dwell in His kingdom. And what is that kingdom marked by? Love. We love because He first loved us. And that's what we're called to. The man I ate dinner with tonight killed my brother. The words were spoken by a stylish woman at a prison fellowship banquet in Seattle, and they amazed me, writes Albert Q., former president of Prison Fellowship Ministries, who told this story. She told how John H. had murdered her brother during a robbery, serving 18 years at Walla Walla, then settled into life on a dairy farm where she had met him in 1983, 20 years after his crime. Compelled by Christ's command to forgive, Ruth Youngsman had gone to her enemy and pronounced forgiveness. Then she had taken him to her father's deathbed, prompting reconciliation. Some wouldn't call this a success story. John didn't dedicate his life to Christ. But at that prison fellowship banquet a couple of years ago, his voice cracked as he said, Christians are the only people I know that you can kill their son and they'll make you a part of their family. I don't know the man upstairs, but he sure is hounding me. The love and grace of our Lord as He calls us to this new commandment, to love others as I have loved you. Remember and proclaim the gospel. 1 John 4.19 We love, why? Because He first loved us. Even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, He made you alive through Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. And we are called to radically love those around us especially those within our community. We love each other because He first loved us. We love those outside of our community because He first loved us. We love those who persecute us and our enemies against us because He first loved us. And we rest and trust and hope in that kingdom that cannot be shaken, that we just, that we just sung about, that we just heard about. We've inherited a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So whom shall we fear? No one, because we are safe and secure in the Lord. So go love your neighbors. Go love your fellow church members. Go love your family. Go love those who revile against you. Go love them and pray for them as Christ has done. Because what would have happened if Christ had not loved us like that? We would be dead in our sin. And thanks be to Christ for his radical love that flowed right out of a radical betrayal. And those two things meet at the cross. And that is our hope. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this cross where this love and this betrayal and all of our sin and everything was dealt with. It all met there, Lord. And we, we are so grateful for you. Lord, as we're about to sing about your deep love for us, we think about where we were prior to your work of conversion and the Spirit in our hearts. We're just like Judas, betraying you, living in hostility, and yet, Lord, you've moved towards us in grace and love. And you've given us a new heart. You've given us a new right standing with you. You've given us a new family. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us by your Spirit as we pray and we ask you, please, Lord, give us a loving heart. We can't manufacture this on our own. We need you, Lord. Please help us to love one another. Lord, may this be the day when reconciliation happens. May this be the day, O oh Lord, where we step out in faith and radically love someone around us, Father, for your glory. And we're grateful that 
On the night in which you were betrayed, you offered and showed us a picture of you giving yourself up for us so that we could be renewed and restored. Lord, it really is the deep, deep love that you have for us, and we're grateful for it. We pray these things humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen.